Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, we're getting ready to start Chapter 3 after all the fun in Chapter 2. <coughs> It's amazing. Now, getting into chapter three, there's an interesting play on words here. The very interesting transition. Look at the end of chapter two. Right? Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man because he knew was in the heart of man. Okay? So referring to Jesus knows man. Look at the first couple words of chapter three. Now there was a man. <laughs> <laughs> See how it works? So that's all the more you need to read, and immediately you need to conclude that Jesus knows Nicodemus. Right? Remember Nathaniel? Remember yeah, or Philip? Remember Philip? Yeah. Jesus walks up and says, Oh, I know all about you. You you're this and you did this as a kid, is it you know, did all that? No human being can know all that, right? So Jesus knows us, knows humans. So he already knows Nicodemus' situation. So it's not, Jesus isn't, isn't trying to get information out of him so he can discover who he is. He already knows who he is. So he's going to lead Nicodemus into the life of discipleship. Just absolutely fascinating. <coughs> now, Nicodemus comes and identifies himself. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. So that means by definition he is a Pharisee. And Jesus doesn't like Pharisees, right? But in fact he is of the ruling council, which is the court system, the Sanhedrin, that we will come to know very well come Jesus' trial in the middle of the night, right? So it's the Sanhedrin that brings charges against Jesus, and since the, 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 the Jews in their own country did not have the right of, of life or death, they had to take it to the Roman governor, Pilate. And that's the process they went through. Pilate said, tried to get Jesus off the hook and said, well, I don't say anything wrong here. Ah, take him to Herod. Herod toys with him a little bit, says, ah, send him back to Pilate. Pilate tries to get him off the hook again. <laughs> tries to offer a really bad criminal instead of Jesus. And the crowd says, no, we want the really bad criminal running our streets and you know, raping and pillaging and plundering. And that's what they say. We'd rather kill, kill Jesus. So... But that's the process. But the Sanhedrin were the one who originally start the process. Uh, they have an illegal trial in the middle of the night. And scripture says that they only invited the Pharisees, the leaders of this ruling council, the lawyers, the judges, to come to the trial in the middle of the night. So it was an illegal trial, and they only invited those they knew would vote against Jesus. <laughs> So there was a number of Pharisees throughout the course of time here over these three years that did in fact change their mind about Jesus and sided with Jesus. We're going to point some of those out about Nicodemus. Nicodemus obviously is, is one of them. Uh, but right now, as a member of the ruling council, so the highest level in the land, he comes to Jesus at night. So... What John is doing here is painting the picture that 
Remember what we talked about in the first two chapters. There was a system established by the Jewish religious leadership that was corrupt, it was evil, and by design was supposed to discourage, dissuade, and lead God's people astray. It was a very evil system. Deliberately, they knew what they were doing. And they choose to continue to do it against the will of God. So one of those guys now <laughs> comes to Jesus at night. And we certainly discover before too terrible long there's actually going to be a formal plot to kill Jesus. So hold on to John, John 3. Jump ahead to John 12. Let's take a look at the, just let you in on a little bit that's going to happen here coming up. I want you to see it now. Let's go to John 12, 42. So this is the John 12, 42. This is the, the, the struggle of these religious leaders. Because you're going to see very early on, look, look at it. Go back to chapter 3. The first thing Nicodemus says is, Rabbi, we know, we, Pharisees, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. So, I mean, it's no secret. They know exactly who Jesus is, but their plot, their design is everything against God, against Jesus. So that's the struggle. You know, we can't, we can't say anything for Jesus because then we'll lose our job, we'll lose, we'll lose everything. But we're fighting God. <laughs> I mean, it's just a terrible situation. So, so 12, 1242. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. Yay! But, ah. Uh, <laughs> because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they love praise for men more than praise from God. You see? That's the, the inner struggle these guys have. So Nicodemus is the first one really to come and step forward and at least inquire. Let me figure out what's going on here. Because I'm, I'm torn. I'm, yeah, I, we know you are from God. I mean... It's, Remember early on, they were coming to John the Baptist and are, are you from God? They're, they're questioning even that. But here, we categorically know you are from God. No question in our minds. No one can do what you're doing unless, unless he is from God. That's, that's not the issue. But the issue is more, I don't want to believe this. <laughs> Say something so that I can talk myself out of this. <laughs> Say something so I can believe like the rest of my, my Pharisee colleagues that we need to get rid of you, right? Give, give me some further evidence of what I really want to believe. So he comes on this fishing ex expedition with Jesus. But again, at night. We know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. Now, is that not the best advertisement for Jesus you've ever heard? <laughs> right? From a sworn enemy. Wow. So he's a ruler, and if you go back to chapter 2, they've already been identified as enemies of Jesus. From pretty much day one, they are enemies of Jesus. But it says that he is a ruler from the ruling council. So not just your garden variety Pharisee, he is of the top 1% in the entire nation. Nicodemus comes at night because he doesn't want the other Pharisees to see him. He's curious, 
but doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. At this point, that's going to change. Nicodemus basically asked three questions. Actually, there's two distinct questions, and the first thing he said is not really a question, but Jesus takes it as a question and answers it as if it were a question. Now, he comes at night. That's significant. Of course, darkness, under the cloak of darkness. But now, keep in mind, darkness is the biblical description of a person's spiritual state. A person in darkness is the opposite of, duh, Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. Go back to John chapter 1. The light overcomes the darkness. Right? Darkness cannot exist in light. You cannot manufacture enough darkness that can overcome light. See how it works? So he comes in the dark in a spiritual state of darkness, surrounded by darkness, and now trying to prove that there is no light. <laughs> That's what he wants. If you go back to John chapter 1, it says not only do, do humans like the darkness, in fact, we will fight the light. We will try to vanquish the light. That's our, our, our human nature. That's yeah, born into all of us. That's original sin. So the darkness is profound at this point. So Nicodemus comes at night. Can you think of one other person in the gospel story that did his dirty work at night? Judas. The only, the only two in the biblical account that, that worked at night. <laughs> so... It, it, it's a real small list at this point, right? So Judas, we know, was up to no good. Nicodemus initially is up to no good, but eventually he, he does turn. So Nicodemus calls Jesus rabbi. First word out of his mouth. Right? So a, a sign of distinction. Again, we know who you are. You're a teacher. Rabbi, teacher. We, the Pharisees, know you are a teacher who has come from God. Now, that's a statement. But Jesus takes it as a question. Go to verse 3. So rather than respond to that compliment, Jesus instead starts by saying, Truly I tell you. Remember what we talked before? Truly I tell you is the formula in, in Hebrew for amen. So he's agreeing with what Nicodemus just said. Amen, I agree with that. But then... He says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven are common concepts throughout the Bible. So as a teacher of the law, an administrator of the law, that was a concept that, that Nicodemus was well familiar with. There was no, no question about that. However, the Jews in Jesus' day, how they had twisted God's original plan of, of the law to such a, an, an evil design was that Nicodemus and the rest of the Pharisees believed themselves and taught the rest of the nation that only those who truly maintained the law would be admitted into heaven. 
You had to follow all the rules. Obviously, don't kill people and all that, but then you got to, you know, uh, tithe everything. Jesus makes fun of them. I mean, you know, you got a little little window box with with some you know spices in, a couple little you know little mint, a little cumin, a little you know whatever your your favorite spice is. And uh, when when you you go to cook and you needed one of the leaves, you know, to, you know, uh, a bay leaf or something to to put in your soup or whatever, you, you would you would measure it and cut exactly ten percent of the, off of that. And take that to the priest. <laughs> you would tithe. <laughs> tithe everything. She said, that's kind of silly. Just throw the whole leaf in and we're good, right? <laughs> but yeah, but spend all that time doing that as opposed to if you accumulated that time and we're able to spend that at a soup kitchen, and <laughs> uh, take somebody out for a cup of coffee and, and share with them the love of Christ, you know, to do something that, that will make an impact on the life of somebody else, that would be awesome. That's what Jesus is teaching. But the Pharisees are just, uh, you know, just I got to protect myself. Got to, yeah, got to make sure I'm doing the right thing, the right thing, the right thing, and I will take this to the, to the, uh, just the crazy degree to make sure that I am, I am right with God. So it was no concern for others. It was just for myself. So it became a very selfish, self-serving religion. So Nicodemus is stuck on the law, but look what Jesus does. He takes that belief and understanding that Nicodemus had about the law and turns it around. It's not maintaining the law that will get you to heaven. Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, this would be the part that Nicodemus's head would start spinning on, it, on, his, you know, on his shoulders. Not one of those words would make any sense at all to him. <laughs> In a sentence, absolutely. They're, they're just Those words do not, it was like a foreign language. Now, here's the important part. In the original language, which Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, the what we have here, born again, the word again could be taken one of two ways. One is physical rebirth, to be reborn. The second way, however, the same word could be taken. We have many words in English that can be taken in two different ways, right? To be born again means, the word again, the second meaning is from above. So you have a choice now. When you hear that word, how do you take it? Do you take it as being born physically again or born from above? Which way does Nicodemus take it? <laughs> you mean I got to crawl back out of my mother's womb and be born again? That's where Jesus gives them a dope slap and says, no dummy, right? Uh, obviously, that is not what I'm saying. But you see, see how, how foreign that concept is to, to Nicodemus. What Jesus, that sentence Jesus says does not register at all. Because all he can see is the physical rebirth, which everyone knows is, is, is impossible. So he can't comprehend what Jesus is saying. I, I have no idea what you're talking about here. But what Jesus is talking about is the spiritual rebirth from above. Remember that the, the dove at Jesus' baptism mm -hmm. came from above, right? See how it works? Jesus means the second meaning. And later in chapter 3, as well as is, is in chapter 19 and 23, we're going to see the same meaning come forth. But what Jesus really means is from above. 
Now, you and I, when we read that, born again, we understand what Jesus is really trying to say. We, we translate that in our minds. I, I would just prefer that our Bibles had born from above. That would be a whole lot easier. Uh, it would be a whole lot clearer. Because as we share that with others who don't quite understand the faith yet, we have to go through that whole process of <laughs> explaining it. You know, we kind of get it, but others, uh, others don't. Now, for Nicodemus to hear the physical definition of born again further demonstrates how spiritually dark Nicodemus is. Here is a man whose life's work is spiritual, right? He's a, re a professional religious person, and yet doesn't get it all. Jesus is going to highlight that in, in, in just a minute. So you have to be reborn from above. Now that's not a partial rebirth. That's a total, complete rebirthing that Jesus is talking about. Completely remaking the human. And Paul talks about that. You know, that you know, to you know, he takes it as far as you know, to be born again is that you know, the the old is past, the new has come. The the old is dead, right? There's a rebirth. And now the new new creation in Christ is what is is what we have. So verse four. How can a man be born when he's old? Right? Just total complete confusion. Sure they can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. See? How how confused, how frustrated. But Jesus is gonna hang in there with him. He's gonna help. So, there's a question. What, do you, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> Give me some more information here. So, Jesus starts, verse 5, with another amen. And clarifies what the, this birth is. It's not a physical birth, but a spiritual birth. And precisely, born of water and the Spirit. Does that not sound like a spiritual birth to you? Right? That's what he's talking about. Now, keep in mind that we use water in baptism. Just say it, right? See the connection. So we—that's that's the the imagery used in in baptism, a rebirthing. That at any point in life you can choose to be reborn. So we use that water to symbolize that rebirthing and the confirmation of the Holy Spirit, born of water and the Spirit. So yeah, I, I see that. That statement there in five is further evidence of all of us, everyone on earth has the Holy Spirit in us. It's simply a matter of recognizing and accepting the Spirit within. Because, well, let me ask the question. When are you technically alive? At what point in the conception birthing process are you technically alive? Is it when you come out of the womb? No. No. Your, your heart's beating at, what, a couple weeks? <laughs> I mean, right? So life begins long before you can even see it, right? So that's what Jesus is saying. You know, to be reborn in that sense. To just, all right, you're already born. <laughs> you already have the tools, the mechanism in place. Now we just have to, we have to re, retool that, re, re, redirect that. 
So, with that in mind, don't lose John chapter 3. Let's go to little Old Testament stuff. Let's, let's see the Spirit at work in the Old Testament. Yes, the Spirit is at work in the Old Testament. Let's, let's check out two, two of the prophets. Uh, go to Isaiah, uh, just a little bit past halfway in your Bible. Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, 3. Isaiah 44, 3. Obviously, this is God speaking. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Right? So, the outpouring of the Spirit already. I'm, I'm, I'm doing that. Old Testament. Go ahead a little bit further to Ezekiel. He saw a wheel way up in the middle of the air. Um, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 25. Ezekiel 36, 25. Bingo. Dun, dun, dun. So, as we're reading the Bible upstairs, if you were the only one reading it, you would quickly discover this, this book is a mess. <laughs> it, 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 it's not a novel. Now, it does start in the beginning with Genesis. It does end with Revelation. That's the beginning and end. But the 64 books in the middle are all messed up. They're, they're not chronological. They're not designed to be. So it's not, the Bible's not designed to tell you a story from beginning to end. What the, those who composed the Bible lumped the books according to the theme. There are several major themes. So the first five books are called the books of the law. So Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, right? So the, all about the law. So those are all together. Then it goes into a whole bunch of history. Some of you were laughing about, you know, when you had to read about the history. You know, just, all right, this, this guy was born, he became king, he killed a lot of people, he died, you know, let's move on to the next guy, right? So it just goes on and on and on. But we need the history. We need to understand how God is at work in just these common, ordinary events of life. So all those books are grouped together. That's, that's the next grouping. Then the next grouping is right there in the middle, interestingly, uh, a few books on wisdom. In other words, if you want to be smart, if you want to be wise, if you want to understand the mysteries of God, read these books. Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, you know, are books that demonstrate this wisdom. Mostly written by Solomon, reputed to be the wisest guy who ever lived. How clever is that? Then, boom, we have prophets. whole boatload of prophets. So that's why Isaiah and Ezekiel are so close together, because they're both prophets. And then they've got a bunch of minor prophets and just a couple pages or something, but they're all lumped together, and that takes you up to the end of the Old Testament. It ends with prophecy. Of course, then the next category is Gospels, four Gospels, but even they're not in the right order. Mark should be first. It was the first one written, but it's not. Then a hit one history book, Acts, and then a whole boatload of letters. Then a prophetic book, Revelation, at the end. So the Old Testament and the New Testament end with prophecy. 
pretty cool. But that's the design. So that's why the, these books are, are, are close together. They share, you know, even though they're hundreds of years apart, they share the common theme of prophecy. So Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Water and the spirit. Okay. So what Jesus is, is telling Nicodemus... He's telling him something that Nicodemus already knows. Nicodemus is already familiar with those passages. So the, Jesus, the first sentence, head spinning. <laughs> All right, let me get you back down to earth here. Let me, let, me, let me share with you some words you can understand. This is what you have in common with me. Let me help you to understand the language here and what God's full intent is in terms of what he wants for you, what he wants for everybody here on earth. Now, keep in mind, John the Baptist used water, did he not? Right? Jordan River. But now Jesus identifies himself as the baptizer in spirit. Water and the spirit. John's taking care of the water. Jesus is taking care of the spirit. And we're soon going to discover that Jesus never baptized anybody. We'll talk about why here shortly. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't baptize. His disciples do. John does, and his disciples do, but Jesus personally never baptized anyone. Now, if you look at verse 8, helping Nicodemus to understand what he's talking about here. When I talk about spirit, even though it is widely talked about in the Old Testament, the Pharisees, again, in their evil plot to suppress the truth, <coughs> took that aspect out of the religion entirely. They never taught it. They never brought anybody to any, anybody's attention. Uh, they, they did everything they could to hide the spirit under a rock. So Jesus lifts it up. And he says, okay, if you don't understand the spirit, let me talk to you about wind. <laughs> Make the analogy of wind and spirit. Because see, again, in the original language, the word is pneuma. Pneumatic. A pneumatic tool. Uses compressed air. I love my pneumatic gun when I'm working on cars, and I can just like be a you know, NASCAR pit crew guy, and I, doo -doo -doo, I can take you know, the tires off very, very quickly. Right? So the power of air. So that word can be taken again one of two ways. In the original language, it is either wind or it is spirit. So Jesus is talking about spirit here. So how do you want to talk about this? Do you want to talk about physical wind, or do you want to talk about spiritual spirit? <laughs> right? you do, you know, go, go either way with this. So he simply makes, makes the analogy. Well, look at a wind. Wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So he brings the spirit back into the physical. Is there anywhere on earth that has never, ever experienced wind? Wind's everywhere, right? <laughs> I mean, it's always, you know, 
even on a hottest summer day, you might go for a little bit with no breeze, but <coughs> in 10 minutes, a breeze will start. You'll see a little rustling in the trees. Even if you don't feel it, you'll be able to see it, right? So everywhere on earth, there's wind. Now, go to the spiritual. Same word. Everywhere on earth is the spirit. See what he's saying? Everyone has the spirit, but not everyone is born of the spirit. It's being born in the spirit then that then brings the full realization of Christ, the full power of Christ into our lives. Not everyone has submitted to the spirit of the living Christ. Not even everyone in churches <laughs> you know, has submitted to this being born from above in the spirit. There are far too many people in churches to this day who, who see church as like the Pharisees that don't understand the spirit at all. I just need to be a good person and go to church and I get to go to heaven. That's exactly the philosophy of the Pharisees. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you don't get to go to heaven. So as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, we need him talking to us as well. Helping us to understand. It's, so it's not going through the mechanics of, of worship or the mechanics of, of being a good servant of Jesus or just doing it because I have to or else. It's because the Spirit is in me. The, the, the Spirit of why you're doing what you're doing is by far the most important thing to God. That it's not done on an obligation, it's done because I want to. Jesus loves this other person, I love this other person, therefore I will do something good and wonderful in that person's life to make sure this other person sees Jesus clearly. So, as Jesus calls these first disciples, that's, remember, that's all he did. I can stand here and argue with you, just come and see. Come and see clearly what I, Jesus, am all about. What you and I do is, come and see, I will expose you to Various aspects of the church in which you will see clearly who Jesus is. I don't want you to see who I am. <laughs> I want you to see who Jesus is. So I'm here to help you see Jesus. The evidence will speak for itself. Not my words, but the evidence. Now you think that would be a great conversation. Think of the wind, Nicodemus. And in spirit. Ooh. Makes sense, right? You and I think, well, this is a no-brainer. Verse 9. Nicodemus responds, well, how can this be? <laughs> Moses, I still don't get none of this. <laughs> yeah, it, it just doesn't make any sense to him. So, ask another question. Jesus has to answer. Verse 10. And he kind of yells at Nicodemus. You already should be aware of these things. You're a teacher. In fact, Jesus says you are Israel's teacher, which again means he is at the top level. He teaches teachers. He's not just a teacher. He is the epitome of teachers who now instruct others in the way they should go. You're a teacher of teachers and you don't get this yet? <laughs> This most basic and simple and elementary aspect of the faith? Nicodemus is saying that he has seen Jesus 
and he has knowledge of Jesus. But obviously, that's not enough. You can't make people believe in Jesus. All we can do is invite them to come and see. The exposure. Let me, let me indoctrinate you and share with you what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And you'll have to make up your mind from there. Now, interesting, that's the exact process the, the, the original church went through. Went from 120 people overnight to 3,120 people. Well, what do you do with that? <laughs> I mean, there's not enough of us to break into small groups and teach y'all. You know what they did? Every night of the week, they had dinner together. Got everybody all together, and everybody was supposed to invite somebody else. Some new person, some unbeliever. Just come and have dinner with us. Come and see. Invite people to dinner. Do you know anybody that's going to refuse a free meal? I don't. These guys are geniuses. And while they were there then, having this meal, it says they devoted themselves to four things. To the apostles' teaching. So it was teaching. It was education. So those who are already believers become better disciples. Those who've never heard any of this before get to hear and witness for themselves the glories of God. There was fellowship. Why do you think we have so many meals in this church? <laughs> right? Fellowship. Just sitting face to face with other Christians. One of the most powerful and immensely beneficial aspects of growing in the faith. You're not going to grow in a faith sitting in a cave. It only happens by engaging with other Christians. And again, that's the beauty of what we're doing here. I mean, you go home and read your Bible, and you'll get some information out of it. But isn't this a whole lot more helpful? So get on our website and, and listen to last night's session, and you'll hear somebody say exactly that. I read this and read this and read it, but I don't, I don't get nearly out of it what, what we're talking about here. Good. Glad you're here, because otherwise you wouldn't get it. But now you do, you see? So the teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, communion. What an educational tool. I mean, to just have the meal... And then one of the apostles stands up and says, let me tell you a story. You know, this guy named Jesus came and he did these really cool things and healed, healed all these people and brought back the dead to life. And, and he was a really good teacher, super nice guy. But then we came to discover he's the son of God. He's God himself. He's the Messiah. And he came and offered his life for us. And he said he wants us to always remember that. That when we eat, that we would remember that. So here, this is bread, but I'm going to use this as the symbol, because that's the symbol Jesus used. He said, I offer my body to be broken for you. Take the cup, filled with wine. He says, this is my blood shed for you. Blood of the new covenant that I want to establish with you. Now, what an educational tool that is. So every night they went through this process. And then, last thing, fourth thing, they prayed. Four things. Can't do a hundred. Might be able to manage four. 
to incorporate those four aspects, key, essential, necessary, for the development of already established Christians and for the, for lack of a better word, indoctrination of new believers or inquiring persons. Just get them here and expose them. Now, you know, that means that we as Christians have to decide what's, what's the most important thing that we need to share. The early church did that. We have four things that we have to really highlight. Just so you know, I've, I've had to go through that process and I've come to some conclusions. I mean, the Bible does talk about hell and hellfire and brimstone and all that jazz, and, but not that much. But if I chose to preach that way every week, you know, do this or you're going to hell, and you brought somebody new to, to our church and that, that was the message they heard, the person who doesn't yet believe in, in Jesus, what kind of impression would that leave? Just, wow, sounds harsh. <laughs> yeah, you know, when you don't understand. So that's why I go with what Jesus identifies as the most important thing, the love. That's what, what, what we're promoting. To love people into the kingdom as opposed to scaring them away from hell is a much better approach because that's what Jesus himself does. And that's what Jesus is doing with Nicodemus. Trying to get him to focus on, this is the important thing. This is the link that you have to connect with before you can understand anything more. You've got to get this spiritual side down. But again, foreign and alien to somebody that was strictly law. That's something I can see. That's something I, I, can, I, I can feel, something I can follow. Yeah, now you're talking about something that is nebulous, that I can't touch, I can't put in my pocket, and I, I just I don't understand those words. So Jesus is trying to help him to do that. But you're a teacher. You're supposed to already know that. So my point is Nicodemus has the knowledge, and he's actually come to see Jesus. The only thing missing is a step of faith. Much like Peter walking on water. See, Jesus is out there doing it. Yeah, that's really cool. Can I do it too, Jesus? Sure! <laughs> Why not? You have the spirit in you. Come on out. Hey, he starts taking a few steps. He's walking. This is pretty cool. And then the wind blows. Distracts him. He has his eyes on Jesus. I'm doing a good job. As soon as he takes his eyes off of Jesus, it didn't sink immediately, but he starts to sink. He's going down. And at that point, he doesn't know how to get himself back up again. Starts panicking and everything else. Jesus walks out and grabs him and says, all right, come on. Picks him up, carries him, throws him back in the boat. And as usual, no you a little faith. <laughs> right? You had it. <laughs> right? So it just takes a little bit of faith to, to get this process going. Nicodemus is not there yet. He's just not there. So, verse 11, Jesus hits him with another, amen. Another, truly I tell you, I tell you the truth. We testify to what we've seen. That's all any good witness can do. This is what I saw. We're telling you the truth, but you people don't get it, you Pharisees. So when I speak of you of earthly things, and you know, things that you yourself can see and verify, even though you said that, 
we know who you are. <laughs> we, we've been watching and we see what you're doing is from God. Even that's not enough to bring you to faith. So why then is there any possibility of you accepting spiritual things? Now, verse 14, did that make your head spin a little bit? Lifting the snake up in the desert? You know, what in the world is he talking about there? Well, let's discover. So he talks about Moses and the snake. Did you immediately think of the, the, the snake in the, uh, the first plague? Uh, before the first plague of, uh, you know, when he, he th throws down his staff and it turns into a snake? And the uh, Pharaoh's magicians also do the same, right? So that's not the snake he's talking about. The snake he's talking about we find in Numbers 21. Turn there. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Third book of the Bible. Numbers 21. Just a weird name for a book. Numbers 21.4. Numbers 21.4. Now the story of Exodus is about you know, the, the, the Jews coming, coming out of Egypt and all that. It tells an incredible story. But there's, you know, many of these other books also tell other aspects of the same story. Numbers is, is one of them. So this is still as they're wandering in the wilderness. Verse 4, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Well, your gratitude underwhelms me. Um, <laughs> then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> they bit the people and many Israelites died. Now oh, we'll fix your wagon. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned against we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now, watch this. The symbol of the medical profession has a snake going around it. Snakes are bad, right? Not that snake. They actually incorporate that healing snake into the medical symbol. Wish I had a mic to draw. <laughs> How cool is that? Right? So that's the snake Jesus is referring to. That bronze snake that Moses lifted up to heal the nation. Jesus says, I will be lifted up and heal the world from the power of sin and death. That's, that's what he's saying. But again, making a connection with, here's something you know already, Nicodemus. You remember that bronze snake story, right? So, remember what that did. I will be the same, only much, much greater. 
And that's the last thing we hear from Nicodemus. Because Jesus is going to go on then, obviously, with the uh, 3.16 and following and explains it even more. But Nicodemus is obviously confused. At the end of the story, it doesn't even say he walked away. It just changes stories. <laughs> it just really leaves, leaves us hanging. But I certainly believe that if Nicodemus, by the end of that conversation that night, believed in Jesus, it would say so. Because it says so with everybody else. And they, because of this, they, they, they came to believe in Jesus. We've already seen that formula. So the Bible's really good about that. So with that being absent, then we can only conclude he walked away that night and is still having his head spin on his shoulders and doesn't, doesn't get any of this. But that will, 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 will change before too terribly long. Now, verse 15, the lead into 16, this has got to be important. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. That's a verse. A half a sentence verse. But that is separated because it is so critically important. Probably every word in that sentence should have its own verse <laughs> for emphasis. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. After all of that, so Jesus will lift himself on high, die a horrible death on a cross, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. As if that's not good enough, then it gets into verse 16. But 15 then sets the stage for the, the universality of this invitation that Jesus is making. Everyone who believes. Don't say every, everyone who is from this country, or everybody who has this color of skin, or everybody who is at this socioeconomic level, or somebody who has, you know, only the people who are, have an IQ quotient of, of this, that, or the other thing, right? There's no differentiation. Everyone, no matter where you are, who believes in this. Jesus offers a chance of salvation to everyone on earth. Once we believe in Jesus, then we choose to live righteously, the right way, because we know that God is working in our lives. The Spirit now, that, we're claim, that we understand the Spirit is in us, we now want to follow that Spirit. So Jesus is saying it's, it, we're not saved because we're good people. But in spite of our darkness, remember he's telling Nicodemus, a spiritually dark man in the midst of nighttime, in spite of that darkness, choosing to believe transforms us into what God wants us to be. We find in scripture that one of the definitions of, of believers are, we are children of light. We're also described as being born into being children of darkness. <laughs> right? We're born that way. But Jesus is saying, if you choose, everyone who believes, everyone who chooses to believe, pushes the darkness away, and now becomes a child of the light. Which then sets the stage for verse 16. Now, I'm a firm believer in exercising my Miranda rights. That everything you say can and will be used against you. 
we need to take that seriously in our witnessing for Christ, our evangelism, our giving testimony, whatever word you want to use there. But when you're talking to an unbeliever, if you say too much, like Nicodemus, it, it becomes overwhelming. Jesus hardly said anything. And, you know, his brain is fried. So you have to be very, very careful in what you say. My suggestion is that every one of us has to decide what our opening needs to be. Scripture says that if somebody asks you about this hope you have in Christ, you better have a ready answer. Remember when I showed the video of the preacher beeper? Yeah, don't, uh -huh. don't start pushing your preacher beeper and expect the preacher to show up and explain this for you. You yourself have to have a ready answer. You can later. You can tell me how successful you were. But don't call me to explain what your faith is all about. It's your faith. So, all I'm saying is, out of everything that the Bible talks about, out of everything that this faith is about, and it's a lot, and there is a spectrum, huge spectrum, it does talk about hellfire. It does talk about judgment. It does talk about the negative. But it also talks about the positive. Which are you going to lead with? Positive. I would say the positive. And that's why John 3.16 is defined as if you had to say one sentence to everybody on earth, this is the key passage. This is why at every football game, baseball game, and sporting event, somebody is, is in the stands. I mean, there's an actual group in our country, hundreds and thousands of guys, that this is their ministry. They will be in the stands holding up John 3.16 in every sporting event. Great job. You know, you're going to want to hold it high enough so you can still watch the game. <laughs> you don't want to hold it here in front of your face, but put little, little, little eye holes there or something, I guess. But you know, that's, that's the message. That's what you want to lead with. Eventually you'll get into sin and judgment and all that, but start with that. I mean, even Jesus does it. Three verses down, he finally does get get into condemnation, judgment, sin. But don't lead with that. Just share. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then exercise your Miranda rights and shut your mouth. <laughs> now give the other person a chance to respond. See, we, we've done such a terrible job at evangelism because we think that if we use so many words, we will beat you down and you will finally, just out of weakness, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. <laughs> we will argue you, you into the faith. We've done that for 50, 60 years now. And so just look around in this country and grade our paper. How are we doing? So, my advice is stop being insane. Stop doing the same thing, expecting different results. We're not that good as salespeople. You can't convince people by your words to follow Jesus. Even Philip realized that. Comes across Nathaniel. I found the Messiah. Well, tell me more about it. I don't know what to say. If I'm going to see him this afternoon, come with me. Come and see. Figure it out yourself. But I'm going to put you in front of Jesus. I'm going to put you in front of what it means to be a Christian. You make up your own mind. 
I'm not going to argue with you. Because I'm going to lose. But if you start with for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Thank you. you know, then, then ask the person a question. What do you, what do you hear Jesus saying? How do, you, how do you respond to that? How do you, how do you understand that, that, that statement? What a, what a great conversation you would have. As opposed to, well, God so loved the world and, you know, and all that, but you better believe in him today or because he's coming back and you're going to die and you're going to go to hell. No! Right? That's too much. It's too much. Pick one thing. People can only handle one thing at a time. The attention span of the human race is tanked. It's just ridiculous. Sermons used to be 200 years ago, ser sermons were generally three hours long. They had no indoor plumbing. <laughs> Just saying. That was the norm. Now, all the reports say that sermons should be no longer than four minutes. Because that's all the more people can handle. <laughs> four minutes. <laughs> ah, welcome to my world. It's just miserable. So, you have to know your audience. People can't handle a lot of stuff. So pick the most important thing and go with that. And then, then let that other person dictate where you go from there. Let the other person ask. Well, God is love, but... You know, I hear Christians talking about sin a lot. What's, what's that mean? Well, so ask a question. Nicodemus asks questions. Answer it. But let the other person dictate where this conversation goes. And maybe they'll look at you, their head will spin around a few times after you tell them for God to love the world, and they don't want to talk anymore about it. Nicodemus walked away that night. But not long becomes one of the greatest followers of Jesus. So all I'm saying is you have to decide what's, what's the effective strategy. How to effectively share Christ with others. If what you've done in the past is not working real well, try a different strategy. Rather than make it so complex and make it so me-oriented, instead let's do it Jesus' way. He gives us all the tools we need. Say that. If you need a little help, type that out. Stick it in your wallet. Put it in your purse. If you can't remember the whole thing. For God so loved the world. That's the message. Start there. Don't start by saying, if a person asks you, well, you're, you're a Christian, what's, what's it mean to be a Christian? Well, we don't dance and we, we, we don't play cards and, you know. That sounds like fun. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, sign me up for that. Bunch of ho-hum, you know, gloomy people. You know, yeah, they're bored out of their minds. You know, uh, just, ah. So don't lead with that. Lead with the good stuff. How many times have you said when you're, you're, you're in a buffet line? Why don't we start down there at dessert? <laughs> Some people do that. I pat them on the back and congratulate them. Right? Start with the good stuff. Start with the key, essential, necessary, vital message. And build from there. You can't give it out. Don't share Jesus... Like what you have in your hand is a fire hose. 
and the person is standing five feet away from you. Right? It's too much. Turn the faucet on and let, let, let it, just a little drizzle come out so you can just stick your face under it and, and just get it all. The message, the singular message you want to share is God so loved the world. Just do that. And yet, as we see here, since Nicodemus doesn't respond to any of this now. Because really when you understand the Pharisees, John 3.16, after Nicodemus' head spins around, now literally exploded. Not one of those words would have made any sense to a Pharisee. And there's a good chance those words will not make any sense to an unbeliever you're talking to today in the culture in which we live. That is exactly like the Pharisees, so anti-Jesus in every possible way. Those words will be lost. And that's what I'm saying. Just that one sentence is more than an unbeliever could handle. Just focus on that. The Jews had this concept that God so loved the world. What are you talking about? He just loves Jews. He doesn't love the world. He hates the world. He only loves us. Because we're the good ones. Remember what the Jews called Gentiles? Dogs. Dogs back in these days were, were not nice little lap animals that you know, you know, met you at the door. and you know, They were wild, vicious animals. They would travel in packs and kill. They were deadly animals. And that's what the Jews called everybody who was not a Jew. They're dogs. Just wild animals. But look at us. We're so good and proper. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, again, the, the word world could be, from the original language, could be translated a couple different ways. When you hear the word world, you could think of a big rock with water and soil and trees on it, right? Physical. But interestingly, fortunately, this original language had another word definition Another word entirely that meant world. Much like in, in this original language, they had, they had three different words to describe love. So Jesus doesn't use the physical planet word. He uses the word that means the people of the world. God so loved the people of the world that he gave his one and only son. God loved humanity so much that he came himself and will willingly die. Now, we need to wrap our minds around that. Because again, as we, as we share Christ with others, the first question we need to answer is, when you come across somebody and you feel that, 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 that pull to, I, I, should, I, I should share Jesus with this person. The first process you're going to go through is, is this somebody I should share Jesus with? Does this person qualify? To receive my words. 
Is there anybody excluded? <laughs> right? Do you look at that person and say, well, you're a really bad person. You'll never get this. No. Every, remember, go back to verse 15. Everyone. No exclusion. Everyone. Is that determined by age? You have to be 12, 14, 16 years of age to receive this? Nope. Little we kids. And you know, I, I, I know that to be true because one of my kids, before she could talk, yeah, we had her in church every week and all that, and she's in a nursery, and the, the nursery had a, a lesson. Just a little little Bible something or other. I mean, age appropriate. It was probably four minutes long. <laughs> but, you know, she was in, in the nursery every, every week. And when she started to talk, she started to talk about, you know, she was using words that we didn't know what she was saying. And it took a while, but she kept talking about the same thing. And we tried, what, what is that word? What is she saying? And over the course of several weeks, when she became clearer in what she was saying, we were able to determine she was talking about a Bible story. And I went to the nursery school teacher and said, did you ever talk about this story? She said, yeah, it was about six months ago. So before she was even verbal, it was in there. And she remembered it. So it doesn't matter how old you are. This is a message for, verse 15, everyone. What they do with it is up to them. That's what Jesus explains next. But the first order is, we've got to share, God so loved the world. And you, you probably should make it personal. To make sure that uh, the person you talk to understands. God loved you so much that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That'll work. So at this point, as you get into 16, verse 17, he actually clarifies, I'm not here to judge the world. See, if you, if you work love and judgment together in the same conversation with an unbeliever, they will look at you like you're, you're a crazy person. Because those are two conflicting forces. Now, we understand that both are part of the faith. But day one, conversation one, that other person is going to get it. It's going to make it sound like God has no idea what he's doing. So again, you can only do one thing. Pick the most important thing. Pick the love. Show the love. Talk about love. We'll talk about judgment later. Because all you have to do is believe. And they probably already think that Christians are judgmental. Yes, exactly. Good point. Yep, they already have this preconceived idea. And the only reason they have that preconceived idea is because that's exactly what we've done. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, uh, in this day of media, I mean, that's, you know, many churches take that. Uh, in particular, uh, West, Westboro Baptist Church uh, is just, I mean, it's done more damage to the Christian faith than, than any other group of Christians since, since Jesus. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're the ones that, 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 that protest all military funerals and, 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 and parades and uh, 
Uh, their, their, their website name is not westboroughbaptist.org. Their website name is godhatesfags.com. What? That's, that's their official name. Yeah. That's what they're, they're promoting. That's their, their banner that they carry. So it, it, every message is, is, is hate, hate, God hates you, God hates you, God hates you, unless you're exactly like us. Interestingly, it's a very small church. <laughs> and, and, and kind of like a family church. Uh, they're just you know, 30 or 40 people. But they, 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 the, the venom that they, 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 they produce, and like I say, they're all over YouTube. I mean, they, 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 they pick it against uh, uh, parades, and uh, it just, it's all, they're on the news constantly. And yes, that's what many unbelievers see, and they say they're Christian, and they talk about Jesus. So for the unbeliever, that's all they see. Well, that's pretty judgy. Uh, you know, it's like, well, if that's the way they are, that's the way y'all are. So, yeah, so as soon as the word judgment comes out of our mouths, it's like, oh, there it is. I've been waiting for that, right? So don't, 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 don't feed into that. That's what I'm saying. Go the opposite. Go with love. Stick with love. Stay with love until the other person is ready to, to receive it. Go with what we know is the right thing to do. Now, again, focusing on, on the dark and why Nicodemus does, doesn't get this. John actually started his gospel by saying that humanity loves darkness instead of light. And, chapter 1 says, humanity hates the light. But wait, there's more. It also said that Evil and darkness don't just ignore light or try to hide from the light. Darkness aggressively fights and tries to destroy the light. It's a spiritual battle. Darkness, sin, evil is not a passive force in this world. It is incredibly aggressive. And if we're the ones with the light, if we are children of light, then all we're doing is bringing light into a dark place. Because darkness, there's no darkness that is so strong that it can beat light. It's impossible. If you're ever down in, in the Lincoln Caverns or any of those caves, and they turn out the light, just strike one little match. And that darkness that you can grab a handful of it goes away. That's the power of light. And that's the power Jesus offers to us. And that's the power we need to bring in the lives of others. <clears throat> Verse 17, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Okay, more good news. However, verse 18. So let me, let me ask this question. As you read verse 18, how about, what, what is he saying in verse 18? Put, put, put verse 18 in your own words. What, what does that really mean? People are saved by belief, sheer belief. Okay, so again, it, it come, comes back to belief. How about, what, what does it say about those who don't believe? 
Yeah, the, the word already is the most important word in that. You see? So it's, you know, so Linda, when, when, we, when we, you know, talk up to people about judgment, you know, yeah, judgment is final judgment, but throughout all of Scripture, including uh, Romans chapter 1, it says that, you know, if you're rejecting Jesus, you're already under the wrath of God. You've already, you're already judged. You're, you've already brought condemnation on yourself. But you see, you know, I, I think the important part of the, the conversation about, about condemnation, sin, judgment, hell, all that, is, is that we make the choice to do that. See, the, 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 they, they think we're judgy because they think we're the ones determining who goes to heaven and hell. No. Even God is not the one who determines that. All hell, all hell is, is God confirming what we've chosen here on earth. A life lived, according to Jesus, the unforgivable sin is denying the Holy Spirit. So if you go your life, you know, throughout your entire life, denying the Holy Spirit, denying that, that, that God is in you, God is trying to lead you to heaven, and you don't want any part of that, you reject that, you, you have brought condemnation on yourself, so you live your whole life condemned, and final judgment is God confirming, yep, that was your choice. You can't stay here, bye-bye. That's, that, that's all it is. So, so make it personal. So the, each one of us decides. It's not God doing it to us. See, that's, that's the image a lot of people have of God. That's mean, nasty God sending people to hell. Oh, I can't believe that. Well, that's, that's really not the case. You send yourself to hell. So a, a life made full of choices, denying, rejecting, refusing, uh, uh, exchanging the truth for a lie, is what, 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 what Paul says, that process is your own personal decision and therefore the consequence is you brought this on yourself. So God's not some big nasty guy up there that is arbitrarily deciding who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell. We're the ones who decide. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. If you believe in me, you will not perish. You will go to heaven. But if you reject me, you're condemned already. We have free will. Precisely. Choice, choice, choice. Unfortunately, there's only two choices. I, 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 I get overwhelmed when I'm, I'm, I'm buying uh, uh, laundry soap. 479 boxes there, and they all smell bad, and you know, just give me one. It's like, my gosh, we don't need this many choices. We just don't. So verse 19, another critical verse. Light is coming to the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that he has done what, what he has done has been done through God. And that's, that's the process, you see. What he's describing is how to become this believer. It's simply choosing to leave the darkness behind and to welcome into your life the light. That reveals everything. Isn't that what light does? So do that, he says. And there's that conversation. It's, it's, it, it's over. I mean, it really does end abruptly. Obviously, Nicodemus does not at this point accept Jesus. But... Just to show you the Paul Harvey end of the story part of this, 
Uh, jump ahead to John 7. Now keep in mind we're in chapter 3. John 7, 50. <coughs> John 7, 50. Actually, I think I want to start back in... Go to 45. Let's, let's do, the, do, do the whole story here. Finally, the, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? Who do you think the him is? Jesus. It's not a trick question. So already, verse 7, they're getting ready to arrest Jesus. So those sent, the guards sent to arrest Jesus, they respond. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. Jesus amazed them so much, they forgot why they were there. <laughs> you mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Now keep in mind, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No! In other words, none of us believe in him. But the mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. So again, Pharisees, just arrogant. We're the ones who know everything. You guys are idiots. You don't know nothing. You're easily deceived. So that's the conversation. Now verse 50. Nicodemus, aha, who has gone to Jesus earlier and who was the one who, of their own number asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? In other words, Nicodemus is throwing in a question. He says, wait a minute. We at least have to have a trial before we condemn this guy. Give him a chance to speak to us. Now there's another Pharisee named Gamaliel that also will appear who says basically the same thing. It's like, let's give the guy a chance to talk. So Nicodemus now, I mean, that was very dangerous. I mean, because the Pharisee just said, none of us believe in him. But here Nicodemus is saying, well, <laughs> he's not tipping his hand entirely here yet, right? But he's, he's starting to, uh, maybe, let's, let's give the guy a chance. Now, obviously, he didn't say, well, I talked to him a couple weeks ago, and he seemed like a good guy to me, uh, but he never said anything like that. He just said, well, you know, let's, let's, you know, he brings it back to our own law. Doesn't our own law say that we have to go through this process? Let's follow our own law. But he's still hiding behind the law. So, he's standing up a little bit for Jesus, not entirely. Good thing it's not the end of the story. Go to John 19. John 19.38. I guess at this point I might as well tell you how the story ends. Jesus dies. So you remember the whole controversy of, you know, the disciples have all run away. Uh, the, the body has to come down and taken care of. Three o'clock in the afternoon, the Sabbath starts at six o'clock. We only have three hours to get this body down. Get him somewhere. We can't leave the body laying out. That's a sin. Uh, a great you know, abomination before God to leave a dead body just laying out in the street somewhere. So we have to get him somewhere. Of course, everything happened so fast, no one even thought of that throughout the course of the day. What are we going to do with the body? Well, he's obviously going to die here. So what are we going to do with the body? Now at 3 o'clock, things start to get real panicky. See you, Dave. So... What do we do? 
Now keep in mind, no disciples left. They're all gonzo. They've all run away. Verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. So remember that. We, we had the 12, but there was dozens of others who followed Jesus constantly. But secretly, because he feared the Jews. So, Joseph of Arimathea is a secret follower of Jesus. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. Who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Now that's a lot of money. It's heavy, first of all. But those were the, the, the spices and aromas that you would uh, put in, in a tomb with a person. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jew Jewish burial practice. So when it comes down to it, everyone is gone. Total desertion of Jesus. Only two men are willing to step forth and literally put their lives on the line. Because they immediately started rounding up those who supported Jesus. Remember the Pharisees' goal was to exterminate every sign of Jesus. It already identifies Joseph of Arimathea was a secret follower. Right? So he wasn't, he wasn't standing on the, on the rooftops saying, I oh, believe in Jesus, he's the Messiah. He never said a word to anybody. But on this day, he stepped up. And Nicodemus now somewhere between you know, what we saw in chapter 7, he's kind of falling over the edge here, not quite there yet. As a teacher of teachers, a great Pharisee. What do you think happened to Nicodemus the next day? Remember the Pharisees proudly said, none of us believe in him. Probably disrobed. Yeah. He was defrocked, uh, likely killed. I mean, you, you've identified yourself as a supporter of him. You can no longer be one of us. So his entire life Everything he'd worked for his entire life. At this point in the good, good Jewish tradition, since you know God's the leaders abandon you, the representatives of God abandon you, God Himself has abandoned you. Therefore, the rest of your family also must abandon you. So, no friends, no family, nothing. Keep in mind that Jesus said, slight paraphrase. Don't sign up to be a follower of mine until you take the cost into account. This is going to cost you big time. You're going to lose family. You're going to lose friends. might lose your job. might lose everything. But that's what I need you to do. That's what faith is. A willingness to lose the physical to gain the spiritual. Comes right back to where we started.
the point is, Nicodemus started as a guy who head spins and explodes till in the end. Is he one of two in the entire world willing to stand up for Jesus? So all I'm saying is when you talk to others about Jesus, you don't have to get them to sign on the dotted line that day. Don't, don't push for that. Give them John 3.16 and give them some time to think about it. Call them up the next week and take them out for a cup of coffee. Remember last week we talked about that John 3.16 and God, God's love for you? Well, what do you think about that? You've had some time to think about it. I know you can't not think about it. <laughs> right? What, what do you think? Let the other person do most of the talking. And that'll steer you in the direction that you need to go. Out of your love for this other person, I just want to hear what you have to say. So if they bring up, well, what about all the sin and judgment and all that? Go ahead and talk about it. But don't bring it up till, till the time's right. If you're going to beat people with anything, beat them with love. Overwhelm them with the love of God. He loved the world so much. That's everybody. I mean, Jesus loved Hitler. That's a stretch, isn't it? <laughs> but you see, if, if Hitler believed, came to believe in Jesus, all the past would have been washed clean. That's what Jesus does. It's way more than you and I could do. That's why he's God and we're not. Go with that. Love, 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 love. It's the way to be. And on that note, there's a good place to stop. I think the positive side of Nicodemus' story is that he lost. He lost a lot, but he also gained a lot. He gained a new family. Yep. He became a member of the Christian community. He also became a member of God's family. And so, yeah... That might be hard to see at the moment, but right. that's what we—that's what we have awaiting us when we make these kinds of decisions. Blessings upon blessings, and the fact that, as I described, the early church gathered for dinner every night. Part of that process was in the, er, the the original days. This is hard to understand, but in the original days, if you said you wanted to be a Christian, that meant that you had to sell everything you owned. You sold your house, you sold your boat, you sold your car, your land, everything. And you gave all that money to the disciples who collected all that money that then they could take care of your needs. They could house you and clothe you and give, give you basically what you need but would also have lots of money left over to help other people in need. Uh, that, was, that was the process. And uh, so Nicodemus now lost his job, right? But now being part of the Christian family, others have contributed to take care of his needs. So he didn't starve to death or anything. Exactly right. So the, the Christian family now will, will take care of you. And I wouldn't be surprised if he was able to find another job washing cars or something. I don't know. Maybe something, something like that. Good point. Did I tell you about this movie yet?
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.